Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in sections 71 through 75. And these sections are kind of all over the map. We're talking about a lot of different things. Mostly missionary work, because Joseph has to leave the translation of the Bible to go correct some of the false statements that are being spread around, mainly by Ezra Booth. And then a whole bunch of missionaries get called to serve missions in this section. So a lot of missionary work, but we are. We're all over the board. Especially when you throw in 74, because 74 is like this curveball with infant baptism. So we'll talk about that. So if you have questions about that passage in 1 Corinthians, because at first reading, you're, you're going to look at that and go, what does this have to do with infant baptism? So we'll kind of pull some of those historical threads for you and give you some things to look at. It's good to just know the background, like what's going on in there. And we've talked a lot about Ezra Booth. I think the important thing to note is that he's writing a series of things in the Ohio Star, denigrating the prophet Joseph, and the Lord's going to tell Joseph and Sidney to time out, take some time away from the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, and they're going to go and basically preach the gospel to try to counteract some of the stuff that Ezra Booth is doing. And this could just be coincidental, but I find it interesting that if you do the math, Joseph and Sydney take a 40-day hiatus. They go from December 1st to January 10th, uh, a total of 40 days uh, a time away from working on the Bible translation to go and kind of take care of that. So that's the kind of the background of section 71. The Lord brings up some very fascinating points in section 71 when he asked them to leave. And he says, the way we combat false ideas in the world is to teach truth. Open your mouth and proclaim my gospel, the things of the kingdom, expounding my mysteries thereof out of the scriptures, according to that portion that the Spirit and power shall give you. The world is going to say horrible things about truth. The world is going to say horrible things about the church and our leaders and Joseph Smith and even ourselves. And we don't necessarily need to bite back and counter them. What we do is we teach truth. I love how the Lord kind of expands in verses 7, 8, and 9, and 10. He says, Inasmuch as ye are faithful, their shame shall be made manifest. Truth will prevail. And we need to know that. Truth is going to prevail. Errors will not. And the Lord says in verse 8, Let them bring forth their strong reasoning against the Lord. For thus saith the Lord unto you, There is no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. I really like McConkie and Osler where they say, when we forthrightly declare the truths of salvation as restored through the prophet Joseph Smith, it will generally have a much greater effect on the hearts of men than if we place our focus on refuting the many falsehoods that have been perpetuated against the Latter-day Saints or against our doctrines. And so I think what they're saying is, take that as an invitation to teach truth, but we don't necessarily need to go back and forth and be on the attack. And yet, in this revelation, the Lord does tell him to confound them and to debate them. To notice what it says in verse seven: to call upon them to meet you both in public and in private. And so, Sydney does challenge him to a debate. I think there's a difference between seeking to have an honest conversation where we discuss truth and trying to attack back. 
If you're going to try and attack back venom for venom, you'll never have the spirit with you. You'll never do it in a way that is going to change their perspective. I remember a conference talk by Marvin J. Ashton that begins with this. A few months ago, word reached some of our missionaries in a remote South Pacific island that I would soon be visiting there for two or three days. When I arrived, the missionaries were waiting anxiously to share with me some anti-Mormon literature that was being circulated in their area. They were disturbed by the accusations and were eager to plan retaliation. See that? Eager to plan retaliation. The elders sat on the edge of their chairs as I read the slander and false declarations issued by a minister who apparently felt threatened by their presence and success. As I read the pamphlet containing the malicious and ridiculous statements, I actually smiled, much to the surprise of my young associates. When I finished, they asked, what do we do now? How can we best counter such lies? I answered, to the author of these words, we do nothing. We have no time for contention. We only have time to be about our Father's business. Contend with no man. Conduct yourselves as gentlemen with calmness and conviction, and I promise you success. And I think if you read these words in section 71, that's what the Lord is saying. He tells them early, just proclaim my gospel. Teach the truth. I love how he says, I'm going to help you. Whatever falsehoods are being spread about the church will not stand. Truth will prevail. I think we can also all agree that when it comes to religion in this discourse, we need to do our best to listen to each other. And one of the ways we know we're listening is if Bryce says something, I can say, you know, Bryce, I'm hearing you say this. Is this what you said? And Bryce says, well, yeah, that's what I said. And then I say, okay, here's my contention or here's my argument. Here's where I'm coming from. We can disagree. And certainly in the church, there are so many things not necessarily settled in the church. I love what David O. McKay says, where he says, we want to have big tent Mormonism, meaning that within the church, there's all kinds of divergent views on things, but in all things, charity, and we should seek unity. But there's a lot of things we just don't, like Bryce and I don't necessarily agree on a lot of things. Uh, but Yeah, Mike's wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> exactly. Um, but but I, I also acknowledge that in this time period, they did debate. And I think we can as well in the ideal speech condition where we're hearing each other and we're not attacking. I think that's that's the key. But that certainly took place then. It certainly takes place today. Um, you know, I wish I could say I've never done this, but when I have been in that mode, I haven't had the spirit with me. And if you think about it, that when you're teaching – if you have not the spirit, you shall not teach. So that's important. It is. And I would take you back to section 50, where we talked about teaching by the spirit. And the Lord says in verse 32 and 33, it shall be given unto you power over that spirit. And when you shall proclaim against that spirit with a loud voice that it is not of God, not with railing accusation, that ye be not overcome, neither with voice boasting nor rejoicing, lest you be seized therewith. And I think the Lord is simply saying, look, if you've got venom, 
in your heart, and you're trying to attack back, it's not going to happen. It's never going to be done with the Holy Ghost. You're never going to edify each other. Yeah. But do proclaim truth. Um, I just love three P words, and I've mentioned them many times in this podcast. In Joseph Smith history, he pointed out that the ministers of religion were promoting and proving. But Joseph early on simply says, I shall present. If you don't have the Holy Ghost with you, you have to promote and you have to prove. But if you are teaching truth, if the Holy Ghost is your companion, because what you have to say is the Lord's truth, all you have to do is present. You don't have to promote, you don't have to prove just present the truth and the Holy Ghost will confirm it. And that seems to be what the Lord is telling Joseph to do. Because, here's the rule, verse 6, and just basic tenet of the gospel, unto him that receiveth, it shall be given more abundantly, even power. So people who are rejecting truth are going to reject truth no matter what. People who are receiving truth will receive it and then get more. So present truth, and those who are seeking it will receive it and move forward. That's good. I'm going to talk just a little bit about the promise of invulnerability in verse 9. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. The Lord speaking to Joseph Smith. And the clear anti-argument is going to be, hey, Joseph, you were killed. 1844, June 27th, you were killed at the hands of assassins in Carthage, hence This is a failed prophecy, essentially, is the argument from enemies of the church. And this prophecy, this promise of invulnerability is repeated in 3522. It's also in the 54th chapter of Isaiah. So I'm just going to go to Isaiah 54 briefly. And And it's also in the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, section 109. Yeah, excellent. So Isaiah 54 is a promise to Zion, verse 1, seeing O barren, Thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. This is a comparison between Babylon and Zion, and Babylon has been known to have more children, and Zion is considered childless, and so we're going to do this reversal. And Zion's going to, verse 2, enlarge the tent, stretch forth curtains, lengthen the cords, strengthen the stakes. Verse 5, the Savior is the husband, the maker, the Lord of hosts is his name. And this is a great promise to Zion, that with kindness will I have mercy on thee, verse 8. And the Savior is going to repeat a lot of these ideas in the third Nephi narrative. But if you go to verse 17, it says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. This promise of invulnerability was given to the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah. It was given to the kings of Egypt, and many cultures in the ancient Near East had this promise given to them at the fall festival. And if you've been to the temple, you have had a promise very similar to this given to you. And so let your mind go to those places and think of the promises that the Lord has made to you through his servants, especially concerning your seed and your power. The promise of invulnerability is a promise that is given to the kings 
of Israel. And remember, Jesus is the prototypical king. So these ideas in the temple are promises that the Father is giving to the Son. They're also promises that the Son, because he has been invested with God's power, the Son has the authority and power to give them to those who keep his commandments. And so he can give them to you in his house if you do it his way. And so these promises of invulnerability are eternal. And so we have a lot of quotes in the show notes from a couple of scholars that talk about this. Just know that the promises given are given from a specific side of the veil. They're given from the side in the Holy of Holies. And remember, these promises are to you. They're also from the Father to the Son. They're given throughout the Psalms, many of them, and we, we list them in the show notes. But they're the covenants that the Father made to the Son in the pre-earth council. And they're also given to us. And I love this quote, they're a reminder of the promises received in the council that God is the guarantor, that one will have power to fulfill one's eternal covenants. That promise of invulnerability is important because, as is always so in these stories, the assignment is impossible and only the intercession of heaven can make a path through which the obstacles that would prevent its fulfillment can be overcome. And so that's by uh, Stephen Ricks and LeGrand Baker. And what they're essentially talking about is these promises given to Joseph that you're going to build a temple, that you're going to build Zion, these are eternal promises given by God on the other side of the veil. He is in the Holy of Holies. And so because that's where he is, he is beyond time. To enter that space is to enter into eternity. And so as one scholar said, the rituals of the Holy of Holies were thus taking place outside of time and matter. Think about the experience that you have in the temple, the promises that are made to you. These promises are outside of time and matter. And so one LDS scholar talks about the promises in the Word of Wisdom in section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants and how the enemies of the church say things like, well, what about my grandma? She kept the Word of Wisdom and she died of cancer. And he mentions, he says, well, these same promises were made by Isaiah to the Israelites. And so once again, this idea of running and not being weary and health and the navel and marrow and the bones in section 89, these ideas are promises by God outside of time. And so I just think that's really important. It shouldn't surprise us then in the dedication of the Kirtland Temple that the Lord writes for Joseph Smith to say, we ask the Holy Father to establish the people that shall worship and honorably hold a name and standing in this thy house to all generations and for all eternity. Notice it's establish the people, that no weapon formed against them shall prosper, that he who diggeth a pit for them shall fall into the same himself that no combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up and prevail over thy people upon whom thy name shall be put in this house. In other words, it's not a promise that no bad thing will happen to you individually, that you'll never have cancer, that no bad thing is coming. We understand mortality and the need for opposition in all things individually. It's a promise of when God puts his name upon you, you are on the team that's going to win. You will prevail over all the enemies of God. God is going to be prosperous. And we've seen that throughout the whole Doctrine and Covenants. 
It doesn't mean life is going to be perfect. It doesn't mean there won't be sicknesses and there won't be financial challenges. All of that is part of our mortal test. It means that though they may fight against us and though there may be moments where the church may seem to be defeated, that no combination of wickedness shall have power to rise up and prevail over thy people upon whom thy name shall be put in this house. I see, Bryce, uh, many of the saints, when they were leaving, going west from the temple, might have even struggled thinking, what happened? Like, we, we lost the temple. And the temple itself is going to be struck by lightning right. and burned to the ground. And, and granted, they build another one. And I can't help but think of the Jews in 586, when the temple was destroyed, many of them struggled and thought, what, what about the promise of invulnerability to the house of David? What What are we to do with this? And there arose a huge group of prophets that were like these, they're, they're called the apocalyptic prophets. And many of them, like Isaiah is one of them, and so is Nephi. And they were brought up into these ascent visions where they were with God on the other side of the veil, and they looked at the veil as a screen, as it were, like a film, and they saw the grand story played out, and they see the panoramic vision of the promises that were fulfilled, and yet they're sitting in the time when the temple's destroyed. And these teachings of these apocalyptic prophets, it's kind of like this underground religion. There were two strains of religion going on after Nephi leaves. One of them was the strain of Judaism that was focused on the law. The law will save you. But there was another group that believed that Yahweh or Jehovah, Jesus, would save you. And so when Jesus comes, they recognize him as that person. And yet he dies, he's resurrected, he ascends. And they're still waiting for the kingdom. You can see them still waiting for it. And so verse 9 is a big deal because it applies to Joseph. It applies to the early Christians after Jesus. It applies to the, the faithful Jews after the temple was destroyed. And it applies to you. You know, when you bury your loved one and you think, but what about the promises? Just remember that those promises are from God's perspective. Anyway, I just think that's really important and it's beautiful. And we see it tied all the way back into the text in Isaiah. It's at the dedication of the temple. It's to Joseph. And frankly, I believe it's to you and me. Yeah. Kind of case in point, one of the local newspapers the day after Joseph's martyrdom ran a headline that said, thus ends Mormonism. See, they assumed that the death of Joseph Smith would be the death of Mormonism. Well, here we are 177 years later, and Mormonism is not dead at all. And that's the idea. Joseph may die. People we love may die. But no weapon formed against this group of people is going to prosper. This people will be victorious. Now, the only question is, are we on Team Jesus or are we not? So... Joseph stops translating the Bible to run out and preach. That's section 71. Now we get to section 72, which has a lot to do with bishops and stewardship and the duties of bishops and the duty of members, kind of three odd topics thrown together in one section. I want to focus as we begin section 71, the rule of the gospel is in verse 3. It is required of the Lord at the hand of every steward to render an account of his stewardship both in time and in eternity. The rule of the gospel is, I'm going to stand an account for every 
aspect of my ministry in the kingdom. I have to give an account of my stewardship. Whether that means I go into my bishop on tithing settlement and once a year give an account of my tithe paying, or I have a personal priesthood interview and talk about my ministering assignments, or may I suggest there's a big picture one that David O'McKay mentioned, and this is what lives in my heart. David O. McKay, when he was president of the church, one day went for a walk, and he was walking around what was then Hotel Utah. It is now the Joseph Smith Memorial Building. And on this walk, he stopped and spoke to some construction workers who were working on the hotel. And he revealed to them one of the greatest things I think he ever said. It wasn't in general conference. It wasn't in one of his books. It was recorded by his personal secretary who was with him that day and wrote it down. And it is, to me, one of the most profound things I have ever read from a prophet. David O. McKay said, let me assure you, brethren, that someday you will have a personal priesthood interview with the Savior himself. If you are interested, I will tell you the order in which he will ask you to account for your earthly responsibilities. So to me, this is section 72, where the law of the church is everyone's going to account for their stewardship in time and in eternity, but there is a priority among your stewardships. So as you plan on accounting to God, let's know what they are. So David O. McKay says, if you're interested, I will tell you the order in which he will ask you to account for your earthly responsibilities. First, he will request an accountability report about your relationship with your wife. Now, he's speaking to male construction workers. I assume that if he were speaking to the Relief Society, he would have said your relationship with your husband. So I'm going to say spouse. My first and most important stewardship that I will account for is the relationship I have with my spouse. David O. McKay said, have you actively been engaged in making her happy and ensuring that her needs have been met as an individual? That's the only question we're going to talk about first. If I was a really, really good gospel doctrine teacher, if I served as a mission president, he's not going to care one bit during this section of the interview. First question is, tell me about your relationship with your spouse. Second, says David O. McKay, he will want an accountability report about each of your children individually. He will not attempt to have this be simply a family stewardship but he will request information about your relationship to each and every child. So the first question the Lord asks me, Bryce, tell me about your relationship with Jennifer, your wife. And then he's going to say, now tell me about Ashley. And we won't talk about Spencer or Kenzie or Owen. Tell me about your relationship with your first child, Ashley. And then he will ask about Brittany, and then Spencer, and he'll go all the way down. I have 10. He will ask about each one individually. What have I done in the life of each of my children? And that's my stewardship. Spouse is number one. Children are number two. What 
do you suppose is number three? He will want to know what you personally have done with the talents you were given in the premortal life. That has made me ponder. He handed me tools to use in his service when I left his presence. Bryce, that kind of reminds me of verse 15 in the section where the Lord says, you need to lay all things before the bishop in Zion. You need to take the tools, these talents you've been given, and say, Lord, here they are. I'm, I'm at your service. Yeah. Notice that comes before church callings. That'll be number four in David O'Mckay's list. Number three is, what have you done with the talents that the Lord gave you in pre-mortal life? Now, David O'Mckay says, number four, he will want a summary of your activity and your church assignments. He will not be necessarily interested in what assignments you have had, for in his eyes, the home teacher and a mission president are equals, but he will request a summary of how you have been of service to your fellow men in your church assignments. And I would imagine, kind of like he's going to ask about each one of my individual children, I would imagine the Lord will start and say, okay, let's talk about that CTRB class. Tell me what you did for each of those children in that CTRB class. The Lord is focused on how am I blessing his children? And I'm just going to interject here, Bryce, so people don't get a complex, because I guarantee someone's listening right now thinking, or they're feeling guilt because they didn't do enough. And so I have a really short list, and it goes something like this, show up and have a good attitude. Because I frankly can't remember so many things. I'm always forgetting things. But you know what? If I show up and I have a good attitude, what I've found in my life is most stuff kind of works itself out. So for example, in your calling, you may not know all the people's names, but if you show up and have a good attitude, the spirit compensates. Now that, like I said, that's just me because I'm simple and I can't remember so many things, but I found that so true on my mission. Like I wasn't the greatest missionary. I didn't know, you know how to do it, or I'm maybe not the most personable person, but if I'm smiling, I have a good attitude and I'm outside talking to people, I'm like... For me, that's pretty good. Yeah, and I think the other thing to remember is I sure better be a better primary teacher today than I was when I was 18. I think the Lord's going to be most interested in how I grew and changed. And talk to me about the current people you have an assignment with. What are you doing in their lives? And I just love that David O. McKay is drawing attention to the fact that we will account for how we have treated Heavenly Father's children. Now, number five on our list, he says he will have no interest in how you earned your living, but if you were honest in all your doings. Sixth, he will ask for an accountability on what you have done to contribute in a positive manner to your community, state, country, and the world. And I love the circles I see him drawing. There's a series of circles here, and the centermost circle is my wife, my spouse. And then there's a circle around my children. And then there's a circle around what I did with the abilities he gave me. And then as that circle gets bigger, it goes to church, to world. 
So as you read section 72, remember the law that it is required of the Lord at the hand of every steward to render an account of his stewardship both in time and in eternity. But there are circles of that stewardship. And if I'm going to focus on something, I'm going to focus on those inner circles and then move outward, but make sure that the needs of the people in those inner circles have been met. Yep. Excellent. There's some stuff going on in this section with the literary firm. Once again, just remember there's people that are publishing things, they're working on the newspaper, and they need to have the right to lay claim upon the church for their maintenance, because when they're working full-time, how else are they going to take care of their families? And so some of that's in here, not necessarily essential if you're teaching a class. 73 is 40 days have passed, Joseph, get busy translating again. So Joseph gets back to the Bible, gets back to working on it, because I'm a nerd, Uh, I kind of geek out in the show notes on some of the stuff with the Joseph Smith translation. So I happen to be of the opinion that the Joseph Smith translation is the Lord through Joseph showing us how to read the Bible, that when we read it, we should be able to, by the Spirit, not only know the truth that's in it, but actually be able to expand upon its views. Uh, I also happen to be of the opinion, based on kind of what I've read with history, that Joseph never felt that it was completed, that after the manuscript was was done, as it were, when Emma had it, there were those that went to get copies of it or to 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 take it and to, to reproduce it. And Emma was very clear when she said to these individuals, she said, you know, don't publish this um, it's not completely finished. And so even today, some people wonder, like, what do we do with the Joseph Smith translation? Why don't we have it? Well, we have portions of it in the footnotes and some in the back and the appendix. But in, in essence, from my point of view and my perspective, reading history is that this was a workbook, that it was inspired midrash, meaning commentary, that it was restoration of text, which was not there. Uh, but it's not necessarily totally complete. Anyway, that's just a little bit of history on that. Bryce, What does the process of producing the Joseph Smith translation do historically in the Doctrine and Covenants? Like, what does it produce? And I think that, to me, is the point. It wasn't product, it was process for Joseph Smith. If we didn't include the JST changes in our footnote, you know what? It was still worth going through because of what Joseph became in its process. Now, I want you to watch very carefully. Section 73, he sends him back to the Scriptures. And suddenly, in section 74, Joseph's getting revelation about questions he had in 1 Corinthians 7. Section 76, the great section on the three degrees of glory, is a result of a question Joseph has after reading the New Testament. So the pattern here is Joseph is going to the Bible and looking at the Bible from the perspective of what did the Lord intend? What was the message here? And that signals revelation. And Joseph becomes a better person because of the revelations that flow. So whether or not he wrote down the inspired changes of the Bible is not nearly as important as the revelation that flowed into his mind because he was studying the Scriptures. Now, tell me that isn't a pattern for all of us. I mean, think about section 76. 
that was the product of the Joseph Smith translation. And wouldn't you agree, Bryce, that's one of the big gems of the whole Doctrine and Covenants. One of the absolute crowning jewels of the Doctrine and Covenants is section 76. Section 138 is the same thing. Joseph F. Smith, the prophet's nephew, is now the president of the church. He's pondering the writings of Peter in the New Testament. That hint that Jesus went to the spirit prison after he died. And he's pondering, what does that look like? What happened there? And then flows another one of the great gems of the Doctrine and Covenants, and that is Jesus's visit to the spirit world as recorded in section 138. And notice so many of these come when a prophet is pondering scriptures. Nephi's version of the tree of life comes as he sat pondering his dad's experience. And so I think the message we need to take away this week is the Lord sends him back to focus on the scriptures and then notice how the revelations correspond to New Testament-like themes. Section 74 is an odd section of the Doctrine and Covenants because it's Paul's comments in Corinthians. Section 76 is about heaven, and what does that mean? Section 77 is a Q&A about the book of Revelation. So, so much of what follows section 73 is revelation about biblical topics, and I promise you that if you will go to the Scriptures consistently and show the Lord that you want to learn, the Lord will open up your understanding and send revelation on other topics, not necessarily what's written in the New Testament. The connections really are endless. I mean, everything Bryce is saying is true. I can't tell you how many times I'll, I'll be reading something, and then I'll spend three hours reading something else that's related to that, and my mind's opened up, and then all of a sudden I'll go back and read something Joseph Smith said, and it's just a bombshell what he's saying between the lines. Meaning, and, and I really do believe this, Bryce, there is so much Joseph Smith had revealed to him that he's not even telling us. He's just giving us hints, he's giving us clues, and they're in the revelations, but they're the stuff that isn't necessarily said overtly. It's this whole esoteric tradition. And the thing that's blowing my mind, Bryce, look at the year. Yeah. It's 1830. Joseph, super young. I mean, he's not even 30. To me, it just says that uh, the Lord is with them. I mean, Joseph doesn't have access to computers, tools, languages, any of this stuff, and it's just flowing through him. Yep. Now, next week's podcast, we'll get into section 76, but look at how 76 begins. And this is the whole theme of what Mike and I are trying to talk about. Go to the scriptures, go to the temple, prayer, all of these things that we do that open ourselves up to revelation. Section 76 begins with these words, for thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth to the end. Verse 7, I will reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom from days of old and for ages to come. I will make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom. Even the wonders of eternity shall they know, and things to come will I show them, even the things of many generations. Their wisdom shall be great, their understanding reach to heaven, and before them the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent shall come to naught. That's the gist of what's happening here. Joseph goes to the scriptures, and the door opens. If you go to the scriptures, if you turn to the Lord, 
the door opens and he shows things through that door that are great and marvelous. Now that leads us specifically to 74. We need to pause in the story of Joseph Smith and Kirtland, Ohio, and the translation of the New Testament, because Joseph draws attention to a very obscure verse in 1 Corinthians about the law of Moses and children and circumcision, which basically becomes the tradition of baptizing children. So that's now our subject, even though you're going to say, wait a minute, are we in New Testament suddenly? Yes, we're suddenly in the New Testament, because Joseph, who's translating the New Testament, gets some clarifying information about the baptism of children. Now, you can, if you read the Book of Mormon and you know that letter that Mormon sends to his son in Moroni 8, the very end of the Book of Mormon, this was at that time period, Paul's time period, Mormon's time period, the post-Jesus coming to the world, this now becomes a major problem that leads to the tradition of baptizing children. So Joseph is going to get some information from the Lord to correct the false doctrine by correcting the passage in Corinthians. It's interesting, Bryce, that this passage in Corinthians isn't even talking about infant baptism. Right. There's no place in the New Testament where it says, go and baptize these little children. They, they call it pedo-baptism. But it does say in verse 6, their children might remain without circumcision, and that the tradition might be done away, which saith that little children are unholy, for it was had among the Jews. So even though there's no statement in the Bible, it was believed among the Jews that little children were unholy and needed something to make them holy again. Which is interesting because females were not circumcised. We're only talking about the, the infant sons in Judaism. But back to 1 Corinthians. So if you go to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6, Paul says, I speak by permission, but not of commandment. And then he's talking about all these different questions about marriage. And it's interesting because one of the questions that early Christians had was, okay, if I'm married to somebody who's not a believer, do I stay married? And, and what do I do? And essentially Paul's statement is, yes, you stay married. And his point seems to be that your marriage to your spouse, though they be an unbeliever, can have benefit to them. It can be it can bring light into their life. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 7:10. Unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But and and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. So he's trying to say this is me speaking. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. So he's saying stay married. Skip down to verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. What does that even mean? That could be very difficult. But what essentially he's saying here when it ties into marriage is that stay married. Your unbelieving spouse can be sanctified or be made more clean by their association with you. He's certainly not saying that they're becoming believers. He's certainly not saying that they are entering into covenant. But this was the early teaching of the church, that it would bless them. And some early Christians, but I don't think this is happening for a couple hundred years, and this is difficult because we don't know, but over the course of time, there became teachings that infants were less than holy, 
that infants were tainted by Adam. And when that came into play, the connection between that idea and circumcision was tied together. I don't think this is going on in Paul's day. Like I said, Paul's not saying these words, but this is historical dots connecting. And so I want to briefly take you through some of these ideas in early Christianity when it comes to infant baptism. Now, one of the very first things that's not in the Bible, it's a text that was used in churches, but it didn't make the cut. Uh, In 367 AD, there was a guy by the name of Athanasius. He makes a list of 27 New Testament books, and he says, here's the list. This is what's going to go in. This is what's not going to go in. And that 367 AD list wasn't really even solidified in the churches for at least probably 100 years. And this book didn't make the cut. The book is Didache. That's how you pronounce it in Greek. And it literally just means teaching. The Didache was probably textualized around 100 AD. So many churches use the Didache. And the seventh chapter essentially says this, before baptism, let him that baptizeth and him that is baptized fast. And then in the seventh verse of the seventh chapter, it says that they should fast for a day or two before they are baptized. And scholars look at this and say, infant baptism was probably not a thing in the first hundred years because babies don't fast. Now, maybe I'm stretching it here. You know, I don't know. I wasn't there, but this is just some of the arguments that they have regarding when did infant baptism creep in? A couple others. Uh, one that, that is used a lot is by Irenaeus, and he lived in the second century, and he wrote a text called Against Heresies. And I'm just going to read the part of the text that's lifted by the people that are proponents of infant baptism. Here it is. For he, meaning Jesus, came to save all through means of himself, all I say who through him are born again to God infants and children and boys and youths and old men. He therefore passed through every age, he meaning Jesus, becoming an infant for infants, thus sanctifying infants, a child for children, thus sanctifying those who are of this age, and then he goes on and on. From that text, proponents of infant baptism say that since Jesus became an infant for infants and a child for children and an adult for adults, that he lived through the ages of man, that infants should be baptized. From my reading of it, that's not what he's saying. We put it in the show notes. You can read it for yourself and decide for yourself. But to me, I read Irenaeus's thoughts and I'm thinking, um, yeah, that's Alma 7, 11, and 12, that Jesus became mortal so that we could become like Jesus, that he could sit across from you. And if you say, Jesus, you don't know what it's like, he could say, oh, yeah, I do. I lived the mortal experience. Anyway, that's against heresies. So you might be asking yourself, okay, well, then when did it creep in? When did infant baptism become a thing? Probably the earliest text we can find is 235 AD, 3rd century, uh, Hippolytus wrote, baptize first the children, and if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let the parents or other relatives speak for them. And probably the most famous person to really push forth infant baptism, and I happen to love this guy because so many things are right in line with Latter-day Saint theology. Uh, For example, he's talking about the preexistence of souls. So much of section 76 is in this man's writing, meaning he kind of had a lot of these same thoughts, and his name is Origen, and he lived from 184 to 253. He gives some commentaries on Romans 5 and Leviticus where he basically says, We've got to do this. We've got to baptize infants. But then he gives the reason. Listen to this reason. He says, For every soul that is born into flesh is soiled by the filth of wickedness and sin. 
Now, I think that's why the practice came in. I think the practice came in because the belief that we're in this fallen world, we've got to fix it. And so I think they're putting these ideas together. I think they're taking with one hand, I'm holding my left hand out with circumcision and my, with my right hand, I'm reaching out with infant baptism. And I think they're marrying these two doctrines. And I think that some of the early Christians of the third century are going to use passages like 1 Corinthians 7, talking about how a believer sanctifies family members through their association, and some of the ideas of circumcision in Judaism, because the circumcision of the young male infant was a sign of the covenant. And what's fascinating to me, Bryce, is if you read the Book of Mormon, they're kind of having the same debates at about the same time on the other side of the world. And I love, we did this when we talked about the Book of Mormon, but I love how father to son, they write this letter in this exchange. And they say, I spent a long time praying about it, and I had this revelation that it's not necessary. If you're teaching this in a gospel doctrine setting, you could probably spend 30 seconds on section 74. But I think it's good for us as Latter-day Saints to go into the history books and to kind of blow the dust off and look at what early Christians were wrestling with, because they did. They wrestle with these ideas. And I want to go big picture, because what Mike just described is the birth of a tradition. And traditions are good, but can be very challenging in the church. Joseph Smith once said, I have tried for a number of years to get the minds of the saints prepared to receive the things of God, but we frequently see some of them, after suffering all they have for the work of God, will fly to pieces like glass as soon as anything comes that is contrary to their traditions. They cannot stand the fire at all. How many will be able to abide a celestial law and go through and receive their exaltation? I am unable to say, as many are called, but few are chosen. It's this idea of holding to traditions when those traditions are not necessarily founded in truth. And members of the church are vulnerable to traditions. Things become traditions that should be reexamined. Now, just to get people thinking, I don't want to be offensive, but let me just give you a couple traditions that have crept into the church. The blessing of food is kind of a funny little tradition. Nowhere in scriptures are we told to bless the food. Jesus blessed the food when he multiplied it for the multitude, but he ordinarily doesn't bless the food. And yet it's become such tradition that I remember one time going to a court of honor, and we had to say a second prayer because the first prayer didn't bless the food. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. Hurry and say the prayer. I ate cursed food. We kind of have this tradition that food is cursed until we bless it. And I've often thought, well, maybe I should open my mouth during the prayer to get down to the food that I've already eaten. And a little boy, terrified that I'm going to die because I ate unblessed food, may be outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe we ought to rethink the tradition. Now, if you read the scriptures, why do we pray before we eat? The very clear teachings of the Lord are to offer gratitude and thanks and praise and honor for meeting our needs. But it's kind of become a tradition. We even say traditional things like, complete this sentence, ready? Bless this food that it will Bless and nourish and our body or something All like of us are quoting it because that's kind of become our tradition. You know, Bryce, on the other end of it, 
I remember being a little kid thinking, what do bunny rabbits and eggs have to do with Jesus? And it was a splinter in my mind. I just had to find out. And I remember researching it and researching it because once again, I'm a nerd and I love talking about traditions with my kids. You know, think about our calendar year. We have so many things that we do ritually every year and the roots of those traditions go way back, you know, back before we had clocks. Those are probably invitations for us as parents to just talk to our kids about it. Anyway, just another thought on And tradition. have the discussion. Now, sometimes tradition really is harmful. Malcolm Gladwell, a brilliant author, wrote a book called Outliers, and in that book, he talked about North Korea airlines were crashing more airplanes than any other airline in the world, and so they hired a consultant to figure out why. And the answer was that their tradition, their culture, their custom is that the co-pilot never speaks up and disagrees with the pilot, and that the pilot would make a bad decision that was leading the plane into a dangerous situation, and the co-pilot could see it, but their tradition prevented the co-pilot from correcting the pilot. And it ended up crashing the plane because he was afraid, based on their culture, to correct the pilot. They were actually crashing planes because of their tradition. And so I think Section 74, beyond an interesting commentary of the New Testament, is an invitation to examine our traditions. And are we allowing a tradition to dictate what we do, or is it really a clear teaching and doctrine of the Savior? I served a mission in a particular ward that had an interesting tradition, and that was that when the sacrament trays went down the row, no female could grab the tray and hadn't hand it to the next person. And so priesthood holders were stepping over family members to pass the tray down the row. And the idea was, you know, you can see where this is based, right? Because Aaronic priesthood holders passed the sacrament. So that became a tradition that said females who don't hold an Aaronic priesthood office couldn't grab the tray and hand it to the next person because that would be passing the sacrament. Now, that is not in harmony with the teachings of the church's handbook, but it was a tradition of that particular ward. Now, taking the sacrament with your right hand is kind of a tradition. I don't know how many of you were slapped on the hand. I vividly remember my grandmother slapping my left hand as I went to reach for the sacrament, and I did not understand why. But it was a tradition that I was violating. So I think we all need to re-examine our traditions. Do we fly to pieces like glass when anything disagrees with our traditions? Let me give you an example. This is from Gordon B. Hinckley. He said in 2002, Now we have an interesting custom in the church. Departing missionaries are accorded a farewell. In some wards, this has become a problem. Between outgoing missionaries and returning missionaries, most sacrament meetings are devoted to farewells and homecomings. And that usually hits summertime, right? And school gets out, boom, the next three months are almost all missionary homecomings and farewells. President Hinckley continues, No one else in the church has a farewell when entering a particular service. 
We never have a special farewell-type meeting for a newly called bishop, for a stake president, a Relief Society president, for a general authority, or anyone else of whom I can think. Why should we have missionary farewells? The First Presidency and the Twelve, after most prayerful and careful consideration, have reached the decision that the present program of missionary farewells should be modified. The departing missionary will be given opportunity to speak in a sacrament meeting for 15 to 20 minutes, but parents and siblings will not be invited to do so. There might be two or more departing missionaries who speak at the same service. The meeting will be entirely in the hands of the bishop and will not be arranged by the family. There will not be special music or anything of that kind. We know this will be a great disappointment to many families. Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, and friends have participated in the past. See, there's the tradition. President Hinckley says, We ask that you accept this decision. Where a farewell has already been planned, it may go forward, but none in the traditional sense should be planned for the future. We are convinced that when all aspects of the situation are considered, this is a wise decision. Please accept it, my dear brethren. I extend this plea also to the sisters, particularly the mothers. We hope also that holding elaborate open houses after the sacrament meeting at which the missionary speaks will not prevail. Members of the family may wish to gather together. We have no objection to this. However, we ask that there be no public reception to which large numbers are invited. Missionary service is, a wonder, is such a wonderful experience that it brings its own generous reward. When a missionary returns to his family and his ward, he may be given an opportunity to speak in the sacrament meeting. Now, how many of you listening have been to a public gathering recently for a missionary farewell? Rice, I'm busted. In other words, the tradition, even though a prophet stood up and said, let's not do this, please don't do it anymore— but it's a tradition that we just can't let go of. And just like the tradition of baptizing children crept into the church because they tied two truths together, sometimes we need to examine our traditions. It was a problem then, it's a problem today. Wasn't it James E. Fawcett says something like that, where the church is global? We love your culture. But if what you have in your culture is diametrically opposed to the gospel of Christ, that part you got to let go. Yeah. In big picture, you think about Joseph, 19th century young man. The Lord says, oh, we're going to go and reestablish the restored gospel. And every time, I mean, section 76 went against the traditional thought of heaven and hell. But even the idea of what a prophet is or even what a church is. And so I think all of us can kind of realize it's a living church, like a tree. It has roots and leaves and branches, and those things grow and change and form and tradition, good stuff. Uh, Section 75 is a laundry list of so many people that are called on missions. Yeah. Let me give big picture blessing of putting forth your name and serving the Lord. God pays his missionaries richly. So as soon as you send in your mission papers, you now can relate to the circumstance of section 75. Notice verse 2, hearken, O ye who have given your names to go forth to proclaim my gospel and to prune my vineyard. 
Every single person who submits their mission papers has done that. Therefore, here's the promise, verse 5, if ye are faithful, there's the condition, you shall be laden with many sheaves and crowned with honor and glory and immortality and eternal life. God pays them in great abundance. And I, for one, have lived in some very questionable places and eaten some very unusual foods, and I've been yelled at and had things thrown at me. I think about that sister missionary that Elder Holland talked about that had the bologna sandwich thrown at their head. I, like many of you, went through a lot of challenging experiences in the mission field, and I, like many missionaries, wondered, is it worth it? If you are faithful, you shall be laden with many sheaves and crowned with honor and glory and immortality and eternal life. That is the pay you receive. But again, I emphasize the condition, if you are faithful, not just for two years. I think if you are faithful throughout your life, not perfect, certainly not perfect, if you are faithful you will be laden with many sheaves and crowned with eternal life. That is big picture blessing of putting forth your name and serving the Lord. Good. I love that. I want to just take my hat off to Susan Eason Black. I use a lot of her stuff from the book, Who's Who in the Doctrine and Covenants. If you're a gospel doctrine teacher, I would recommend that you pick up a copy of that book. It's just really good because what she does is she takes every single person mentioned in the Doctrine and Covenants, and she gives you a short sketch of who they are, and it's all footnoted and good stuff. And so we took some of the people on that list, obviously not all of them, but we took some of them and we put them in the show notes. That could be a standalone podcast. Okay, so Let's throw the contrast. Yeah, okay. So Lyman Johnson. In 1838, the Johnson brothers, Luke and Lyman, leave the church. But Lyman Johnson is the one that's involved in land speculation, and he's so depressed after he leaves the church, and he says, essentially, if I could believe it, I would, but he doesn't come back, and he struggles. But I think we skip over Luke. Luke Johnson, he's 24 years old when this revelation is given in 1831, and he was ordained a member of the Quorum of the Twelve in 1835. He's in his 20s. He fell away from the church in 1837, but Luke came back. And we don't really talk about Luke a lot, but in 1846, so after Joseph Smith dies, he goes to his brother-in-law, Orson Hyde. You see, Orson marries Luke's sister, Marinda Nancy Johnson. And so that's the connection between him and Orson Hyde. And so on March 8th, 1846, After Joseph Smith martyred him, he comes back into the church, and he actually goes west with the saints, and he settles in Tooele County. This little place, if you look on the map, we actually link it for you in the show notes, called St. John. That little teeny place, St. John, was actually named after him because his last name is Johnson. And he dies at the home of Orson Hyde on December 9th, 1861, at the age of 54. And I really like what Brigham Young says about him. 
He says, since his return to the church, he has lived up to the truth to the best of his ability, and he died in the faith. And so here's an apostle who leaves. He's in his 20s. He comes back, and he dies firm in the faith. I like that story, and I also like it because I can't even imagine being in my 20s back then and being called to that office, and I certainly am just, you know, I'm just going to sit here and say, I'm not going to cast judgment on these guys because I wasn't there. And it's complicated, especially when you get into the 1838 history. So that's Luke. So Samuel Smith, verse 13, he is actually Joseph Smith's brother. So he's 23 when this revelation is given in 1831. But think about this. How old's Joseph Smith? Like Samuel's right behind him in age. Um, Samuel was one of the eight witnesses to the Book of Mormon and one of the six original members of the church. And he does serve that mission with Orson Hyde, like he's called. And this is what we read in the historical records, that they went from Ohio to Maine, and that this was one of the most arduous and toilsome missions ever performed in the church, according to Orson Hyde, to travel 2,000 miles on foot, often sleeping in schoolhouses, after preaching in barns, in sheds, and by the wayside, was something of a task. Samuel Smith wrote, we went from house to house, and many during that day rejected us. And so he kind of lived this life of, at least during that mission, of just great difficulty. It wasn't like they had an apartment and a car, and they had like an area book. They just had to go out and go preach the gospel. And for Orson Hyde to say that this was one of the most difficult missions If you know Orson Hyde's story, he travels to Europe and then eventually to Jerusalem. He gets waylaid in Germany for a while where he can't get out. He's got some kind of a visa issue. And so he picks up German and writes some of the first literature for the church in German. And then he gets to Israel. And if you read some of the stories of people traveling in Israel in the 1800s, this was not like going to Israel today. I mean, you would get knifed. You would get robbed. It was kind of sketchy. And Orson Hyde says that this mission in this part of North Eastern United States was really difficult, kind of paints you a picture because Orson Hyde, this guy's traveled. So we got to give Samuel props for that mission. Uh, But he does, Samuel follows the church and he leaves the state of Missouri in 1838 and he goes to Nauvoo. We don't talk a lot about Samuel because um, he dies right after Joseph. He's on horseback. When he finds out that his brother's been killed, it was a terrible shock. This is what his daughter says. The terrible shock was too much for him, and for an instant he reeled in his saddle, and they expected him to fall, and he steadied himself when he heard the news that Joseph was killed. God help me, I must go to them. And as he's on horseback, the mob hid in a thicket, and as they saw him approach, they gave him chase, and they started to shoot at him. Samuel managed to stay out of the range of their bullets, and he made it to Carthage. And the next day, he escorted the bodies of his brothers, Joseph and Hiram, back to Nauvoo. And so he's been chased by mobs. They've been shooting at him. And he goes to his mother. And he tells her, he says, Mom, I've had a dreadful distress on my side ever since I was chased yesterday by the mob. I think I may have received some injury, which is going to make me sick. Well, it did. Joseph and Hiram were killed on June 27th. And Samuel suffered with a fever until July 30th, 1844, and then he died. And so by July 30th, 1844, in just a short time, just a few weeks, Lucy Mack Smith has lost three of her sons to the 
violence in Carthage. And so Samuel dies in the faith. And like I said, he's one of the Smith brothers we don't talk a lot about. To me, he is a martyr for the cause of the restoration. In his patriarchal blessing, his father said to him, the just shall rise up and call thee a perfect man. The testimony which thou hast borne and shall bear shall be received by thousands, and thou shalt magnify thy calling and do honor to the holy priesthood. He's kind of like Nephi's brother, Sam. You've got Nephi and then Sam, who was every whit as good as Nephi, but doesn't get mentioned. Um, But that was Samuel. Yeah. So I think we'll end with Simeon. So if you look in section 75, verse 30, it says, Let my servant Simeon Carter and my servant Emer Harris be united in the ministry. Now, Emer is Martin's brother, but Simeon Carter is Jared Carter's brother. And these two fellows do a lot of good. Uh, Simeon is 37 when this revelation is given in 1831, and he'd been blessed with the gift of healing and preaching the word. And so when Simeon met Parley P. Pratt, this is Parley's account of what happened. We were in the act of reading to Simeon Carter and explaining the Book of Mormon when there came a knock at the door and an officer entered with a warrant from a magistrate to arrest me on a frivolous charge. I dropped the Book of Mormon at his house. He read it with attention. It wrought deeply upon his mind, and he went 50 miles to the church we had left in Kirtland, and he was baptized there and ordained an elder. He then returned to his home and commenced to preach and baptize. A church of about 60 members was soon organized. So imagine you're baptized and right out of the gate, you're out preaching the gospel from the Book of Mormon, and you're having that kind of success. Probably one of my favorite stories about Simeon is the story of John Tanner. You see, Simeon Carter, over the course of his missionary experiences, uh, he meets this man by the name of John Tanner. And John Tanner was a Bible-reading Baptist who, when he heard the rumors of Mormons in the town, he went to the meeting where they were so that he could protect his Baptist brethren from the false doctrine of the Mormon elders. And for some months prior to this meeting, his leg had been afflicted with open sores, and it just wouldn't heal. And so over the course of time, he listens to them preaching— And he ends up being converted. He feels the spirit and he's reading the Book of Mormon. And so a few days later, Jared Carter, Simeon's brother, visits the home and administers to John and commands him to rise and walk in the name of the Lord. And according to the historical sources, he never used crutches again. And he was healed. John and Elizabeth Tanner were baptized on September 17th, 1832. And Simeon moves to Far West in 1836. He serves on the High Council. He was actually at the Battle of Crooked River with David W. Patton, and he actually was wounded in that battle. And in December of 1838, when people are talking about Joseph being a fallen prophet, he says this. He says that he did not think Joseph was a fallen prophet, but he believed in every revelation that came through him. He didn't think that Joseph would be removed and another planet in his stead. He was determined to persevere and act in righteousness in all things so that he might gain a crown of glory and reign in the kingdom of God. And so he did. Simeon remained true for the remainder of his life. From 1846 to 1849, he served a mission in England. And then in 1850, he migrated with English converts in Orson Hyde's company to Salt Lake and settled in a place about 14 miles north of Ogden. 
1869, at the age of 74, in the settlement that he helped found, uh, he passed away. And so Simeon Carter is a really good example of, of a missionary on this list of missionaries that he stays true. Now, there's a lot of people we're not talking about. For example, verse 34, Sylvester Smith. He's a very colorful fellow. We're going to talk about him when we get to Zion's camp, but he doesn't end up in the church. But yet, he had all the potential to do so. And then you have other characters in here, like verse 31, Thomas B. Marsh. We've talked about him. And so if you want to pull on those threads and read about those people, um, I would encourage you to do so. And if you're a teacher, sometimes it's good just to kind of know their stories so that you can help uh, the lesson come along and help it come to life. Because I think sometimes when we teach the scriptures, we lose that connection with the humanity of these people. And I think that's important because they were real people. Now, before we leave, I just want to leave on one last note. These missionaries that are being called in section 75 were able to leave their families. Verse 24, it is the duty of the church as to assist in supporting the families of those and also to support the families of those who are called and must needs be sent into the world to proclaim my gospel. So these men were able to leave their families and the church is going to help out. They were in verse 25 to obtain places for their families in as much as your brethren are willing to open their hearts. And then verse 28... Again, verily I say unto you that every man who is obliged to provide for his family, let him provide, and he shall in no wise lose his crown. Today we don't send fathers of families and mothers of families out into the mission field. We send young men and young women. But even among those young men and young women, there are some who, because of their circumstances, because of one situation or another, are not able to go serve a mission. And I know it tortures them that they can't go, and they're filled with feelings of guilt, and they feel like they've let the church down, and they've let the Lord down. That's why I love this verse 28. And to any of them who are listening, or to their loved ones, who because of a very legitimate situation— because of COVID-19, because of medical challenges, or whatever it is, a very good, reasonable reason they were not able to go serve a mission, listen to what the Lord says in verse 28. Their hearts were right, their intents were right, their desires were right, their love of the Lord was right. This was not an unworthiness issue. It was simply a circumstance came out that they, like the men in section 75, couldn't leave. The Lord says, they shall in no wise lose their crown. The Lord understands those circumstances, and the Lord will compensate them. So to those whose desires were right, but because of the circumstance they were not able to serve, I love what the Lord is saying here. Inasmuch as men do good, they shall in no wise lose their reward. And with that, we'll leave you next week at Section 76, The Three Degrees of Glory. That'll be good. And that'll be a great one. We'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.